2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Welcome to Part-Time Genius, a production of iHeartRadio.
4: Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, well, you know how people like to keep tabs on their old classmates, you know, just so you can see what everybody's wound up doing.
3: That is why I joined Facebook. I, I want to see what people are doing. I, I want to see how my high school rivals are doing. Terribly, I hope. Did, did you <laughs> recently <laughs> join Facebook? You yeah, just, yeah, Lost Just, just, yeah, just discovered, <laughs> like, your grandmother? That's
4: pretty great. Actually, I was thinking about that this week while reading up on Thurgood Marshall, and it actually made me feel so bad for the Lincoln College class of 1930, which I know you're, I think you're an expert on the Lincoln College class of 1930.
3: <laughs> I am not. But uh, I, I'm guessing it's because they graduated a future Supreme Court justice. Well, that's the thing. So
4: Lincoln's class of 1930 was actually home to a slew of prominent black leaders. So for literature, you had Langston Hughes. For music, there was Cab Calloway. Then, of course, there was Marshall himself, who made this colossal name for himself in the legal system. And on the political side of things, the class had Kwame Nkrumah, the future president of Ghana. Isn't that unbelievable? Mm-hmm. I mean, no matter which field the other students went into, they were all pretty much guaranteed to be outshone by their (laughs) classmates. But the more I poked around Marshall's biography, the more I wanted to know. know, How did he become such a larger-than-life figure in the courtroom? How did he look at the Constitution? And did he really take the oath of office from an ex clan member? So let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, watching old Days of Our Lives reruns. This is gives him an excuse to do this because I know he <laughs> likes to do this on the quiet. But in honor of Thurgood Marshall, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil.
3: I know it's a tribute, but uh, I, I do feel like Tristan just loves his stories. He does. He <laughs> definitely
4: loves his stories.
3: Well, that was my first thought, but Tristan was so adamant about only
4: watching episodes from the 1970s and 80s that it made me wonder if there really was a connection. So we did a little bit of digging, of course, and it turns out that during his years on the bench, Justice Thurgood Marshall was actually a big fan of Days of Our Lives, and I love this, but I mean, like, really a fan of soap operas in general, and apparently he once told Justice Brennan there was, quote, a lot to be learned about life. From soap operas,
3: so things like how to stop your evil twin from stealing the men you love. I yeah. imagine at <laughs> you know, least
4: these, these practical life lessons. And Justice Marshall didn't want to miss any of them. In fact, Time Magazine ran this report. This was back in 1976, claiming that Marshall would often call a recess right around 1 p.m. so that he could watch the latest Days of Our Lives episode in his chambers. You know, I guess they didn't have a way to uh, TiVo or record things. Did I just say TiVo? I think you did. <laughs> 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 anyway, sometimes he would be late to his next meeting because he didn't want to miss the end of an episode. <laughs> I, said, I totally said TiVo.
3: So, obviously, this is a funny thing to point out because, you know, aside from his odd TV habit, which actually makes him feel pretty human... Like, his legacy is just stunning. Um, I mean, you think about the pivotal role he had in the civil rights movement, his landmark appointment as the first black member of the Supreme Court. There's just a ton to discuss here.
4: Yeah, there definitely is. All right, well, I'll I'll leave it up to you. Where where do you want to start?
3: How about with a bombshell? You know how I like to start these things off with bombshells. (laughs) Apparently, Thurgood Marshall's name wasn't actually Thurgood Marshall. Hmm. When he was born in Maryland, this was in 1908, he was actually given the name good Marshall, like the word thorough right. and good put together. But it was such a mouthful and so annoying to spell that Marshall told this reporter. By the time I reached the second grade, I got tired of spelling all that out and had shortened it to Thurgood.
4: I love that he had decided this by second grade. I and mean, mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing. All right. Well, I actually didn't know his name was abbreviated, but but what else did you dig up on his childhood?
3: So he was born and raised in Baltimore. This is around the turn of the 20th century. He had one older brother, this guy, uh, William Aubrey Marshall. His mother was a schoolteacher, and his father, William Canfield Marshall, worked as a dining car waiter on a railroad, and then later as this uh, steward at a fancy country club. So the Marshalls weren't exactly wealthy, but they felt middle class. And that's kind of amazing in itself when you consider that Thurgood's father was actually the grandson of a former slave. And this was not lost on Thurgood, like the social progress that was made just a generation or two. And, of course, later he'd make it his mission to sort of push progress even further.
4: So I'm curious, how did Thurgood get interested in law in the first place? Because I was looking at a lot about his early legal career, but there really wasn't a lot of insight into what made him want to be a lawyer.
3: So from everything I read, it was really his father who kind of sparked this passion. His dad, William, was this amateur writer. And he'd also been interested in legal proceedings and how courts worked. And it was such an obsession for him that in his free time, he liked to go down to the local courthouse and listen to the civil and criminal trials. And sometimes he'd bring his sons along, too. But this is the amazing part, right? When they got home, the three of them would actually lay out all the arguments they'd heard that day and then have these big, lively debates around the dinner table. And sometimes these discussions would happen five times in a week. So in all this excitement, Thurgood really started to develop this interest in law and how to use words to confront injustice. In fact, we actually have Thurgood's words on this. In 1965, he talked about his father's influence saying, quote, he did it by teaching me to argue, by challenging my logic on every point, by making me prove every statement. He never told me to be a lawyer, but he turned me into one.
4: You know, my son is big into this uh, series by John Grisham called Theodore Boone. Have your kids uh, discovered this yet? So, <laughs> like that's all I think about law now is like what kids are in the, in the courtroom like listening to these cases. But uh, did you get a sense for like what kinds of cases the marshals were scrutinizing when they were at home?
3: So Gabe pulled a ton of this for us, and and he couldn't track down specific cases, but it is easy to imagine that they would have seen a lot of cases involving racial discrimination. When Thurgood was growing up in Baltimore, the city's death rate for African Americans was actually double that of white residents. And because of segregation, he and his brother were actually forced to attend this all-black public school. So he felt all of this at this really early age. And what he saw in both court and the classroom, that really shaped the viewpoints he'd ultimately spend his life fighting for.
4: All right, so he was obviously engaged in a lot of self-education, a really curious kid, and observing all these trials, debating law with his dad. But I'm curious, how was he in school? Like, was he he a pretty good student?
3: I mean, grade-wise, he was excellent. In high school, his grades were above average, and he made a name for himself on the debate team You know, thanks to all this practice that he and his dad had had at home, but when it came to behavior, Thurgood was actually kind of a troublemaker. Really? Yeah. You you might even say he was... No, 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 uh, (laughs) no, no, no. no. Do do not say Thurbad.
4: I could tell. I knew that's where you were going with that.
3: Yeah, it's probably for the best, but he actually misbehaved a lot at school. And and whenever he did, his teachers would make him read the Constitution as punishment. (laughs) And here's the thing. Thurgood got in so much trouble that by the time he graduated in 1925, which was a year early, he had memorized the entire Constitution.
4: Wow. You know, it's it's funny they didn't realize how much they were contributing to his, you know, excellence yeah. <laughs> in, this, in this field. And listening to you lay all this out, I mean, it's pretty amazing how all these different little things in his life seem to be working together to sort of, you know, nudge him along mm-hmm. a certain path. And I mean, I know we're looking at all this in hindsight and speaking in these broad terms, but his family history, his city, his school, his dad's interests, of course. And now even his punishments contributed to this. But, you know, when you take it all together, it almost seems inevitable that he would become a lawyer and and fight for civil rights.
3: Yeah, and, and I guess Thurgood agreed with you because after graduating college in 1930, he immediately applied to the University of Maryland Law School. And this is actually where one of those nudges down the path comes in because despite a glowing high school transcript, the college ultimately rejected Thurgood because of the color of his skin. But even though this is jumping a little bit ahead, I want to give you some instant satisfaction by telling you that about five years after he applied, Thurgood actually helped launch and win the case that brought an end to segregation at the very school that rejected him.
4: Oh, wow. it's pretty sweet vindication. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's pretty great. And I can only imagine how good it must have felt when that verdict came in. And I'm curious, though, like, where did Marshall wind up studying law?
3: So instead of Maryland, Marshall went to law school at Howard University, which is obviously historically black, so segregation wasn't an issue. And at the time, the dean of the law school was this super well-respected civil rights lawyer named Charles Houston. And on campus, Houston had this reputation for being super strict and demanding, but Marshall actually responded well to the style of teaching. And in fact, the two hit it off so well that Houston became a mentor to Marshall And years later, they worked closely together in the legal division of the NAACP.
4: Yeah, and Marshall's work with the NAACP became the cornerstone of his career. So I definitely say he chose the right mentor in Houston. So when did Marshall first get involved with the NAACP? Was was that straight out of law school?
3: No. So Marshall actually passed the bar exam and graduated from Howard with honors, but He spent his first few post-grad years trying to get this private practice going in Baltimore. He landed a few small cases every now and then, but none of them paid very much. And things got so bad that in 1934, Thurgood was forced to take a second job at an STD clinic just to make rent. Mm. In fact, if if you remember that breakthrough case I mentioned earlier, the, the one where Thurgood got the University of Maryland to desegregate, he was working the late shift at that clinic the whole time he prepped for the case. Oh, wow. And even when he moved to New York City in 1936 to work full-time for the NAACP, Thurgood was so concerned that things wouldn't pan out as a lawyer that he didn't actually quit his job at the clinic. He, he just requested a six-month leave of absence. That's how touch-and-go things were for him as a young lawyer. That is pretty wild. You mentioned Marshall's mentor
4: was involved with the NAACP. Did, did he actually have something to do with Marshall getting called up to New York?
3: So Charles Houston had actually resigned as dean in 1935 so that he could become the first legal counsel for the NAACP. And by the time Marshall joined on a year later, Houston had already become the director of the group's legal division. And the two worked side by side on civil rights cases for the next few years. And then when Houston retired from the role in 1940, Thurgood stepped in and he really didn't miss a beat. He stayed on as director all throughout the 40s and the 50s.
4: Yeah, and that's probably the portion of his career that, that I feel most familiar with. You know, all the landmark cases he tackled and, you know, not just as a justice serving on the Supreme Court, but as a lawyer arguing in
3: front of the Supreme Court. Which is perfect because I'll hand you the baton and you can walk us through it. But uh, let's take a quick break first. A new season
0: of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast.
4: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about how Thurgood Marshall earned his seat on the highest court in the country.
3: And I feel like you were maybe alluding to this answer just before the break. You were saying that it was Marshall's time with the NAACP that really won him his acclaim.
4: Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, Marshall served as the group's top attorney for a little over two decades. And this was when he really made a name for himself, because during that period, he argued a record-setting 32 cases before the Supreme Court— And get this, so out of those 32 civil rights cases, Marshall won 29 of those. Not a bad average at all. Even today, all these decades later, Marshall is still near the top of the list for the number of cases argued and won before the Supreme Court.
3: I mean, that's stunning. But what were some of his biggest wins? Well, his first Supreme Court
4: victory was a pretty big one. So this was a 1940 case. It was called Chambers versus Florida. And it dealt with these four black men who had confessed to a murder earlier that year, and had been sentenced to death for it. However, Marshall was able to show that their confessions to the crime had been coerced by the police. So the four suspects had been held in police custody for a full week, never given access to legal counsel. And despite this, the men had been questioned individually throughout the week with as many as 10 police officers and community members present during these interrogations. But again, no lawyers were present. And because this was all prior to the establishment of Miranda Rights, no one told the men that they had the right to remain silent during these interrogations. So in the end, the court ruled that the confessions that had led to a conviction had not been given voluntarily, which made them
3: inadmissible. So the death sentence ruling was actually overturned. I mean, it it is wild to think that there was a time when those kinds of tactics were actually the norm. You know, holding people without charges, denying them counsel, and... Of course, you know, these civil rights violations still happen, but in the era we're talking about, it sounds like it was more or less acceptable behavior until cases like this were brought to trial.
4: Yeah, and it would actually be another 26 years after the Chambers case before those tactics would finally be outlawed by the court.
3: And that's when police actually had to start telling suspects that they had the right to an attorney and the right to remain silent and all that,
4: right? Yep, that was the ruling in the Miranda versus Arizona case of 1966, which, by the way, was also a case that Marshall argued. Huh. though he was the Solicitor General by that point and no longer working for the NAACP. And Marshall had a slew of other landmark victories in the years between Chambers and Miranda, but the biggest had to be Brown versus the Board of Education, You know, the case that brought down school segregation and the whole separate but equal doctrine. Mm-hmm. So there's no question that was one of the most important cases of the 20th century and probably the most defining moment of Marshall's whole career. And this was in the early 50s, right? Yes, yeah, it was 1954. So this was really before the civil rights movement had gotten into full swing. It was a year before Rosa Parks' bus ride, three years before the Civil Rights Act of 1957. And so the Brown case was kind of a precursor to all of that. And it may have taken a while for the positive ruling to be fully enforced, but right from the outset, it definitely helped kick off the movement and kind of pave the way for more civil rights victories to come.
3: So I I know the main takeaways from the Brown case have been covered pretty well by now, but could you maybe run through the basics just for, certainly for me, but for anyone else who might have forgotten? Sure. So basically, Marshall was
4: representing a group of black parents whose children had been forced to attend all black schools, and this was in Topeka, Kansas, you might remember. Mm -hmm. And of course, this was a case that was near Marshall's heart because this was something he had experienced himself, first in high school and then, of course, again in college. So in the end, Marshall argued that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal and therefore unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court agreed with him, unanimously, actually. Mm -hmm. So to be clear, that positive ruling was never guaranteed given the political climate of the era, particularly in the South, you know, where Jim Crow laws were still very much in effect. But it helped that Marshall was so forceful and so clear when exposing the hypocrisies of the current laws in court. So, for example, there was one point during the Brown arguments when the Attorney General of Virginia complained that bringing the case before the court was an assault by the NAACP on the, quote, cherished heritage of segregation. Wow. Yeah, and it gets even worse when you hear how the Attorney General phrased all this. He said that the NAACP was trying to, quote, Press this crown of thorns upon our brow and hold the hemlock to our lips. Wow. Just so bizarre, which I, I guess is a dual reference, likening the fall of segregation to both the crucifixion of Christ and the death of Socrates. I'm not, I'm <laughs> Such not really it's a messy interesting but just <laughs> like you said, it is it's definitely messy and weird. Yeah, and, and you know, you'll actually like Marshall's response to this. So he told the court, "You have heard references to one state's greatest and most cherished heritage." And when you look for it, you find that greatest and most cherished heritage is to segregate colored people.
3: I mean, it's just stunning to me that they voted unanimously with him. It's it's crazy. But I, I do want to go back to something you mentioned a little earlier. You said Marshall became the Solicitor General in the 60s, right?
4: Yeah, so Marshall actually received a couple of presidential appointments before finally being called up to the Supreme Court. He left the NAACP in the early 60s, and this was to serve on the U.S. Court of Appeals and that was after being nominated by President Kennedy. And then four years later, Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, he appointed Marshall the first black Solicitor General in U.S. history.
3: Which is obviously important historically, but I feel like I'd appreciate it a little bit more if I actually knew what a Solicitor General did.
4: You don't don't think about this every day? No. That's fair. Well, so the Solicitor General is, as you might expect, a legal post, and it's Basically, the attorney who goes before the Supreme Court to argue cases on behalf of the federal government. So, a lot like what he had done for 20 years with the NAACP, but now with the federal
3: government as his client. Hmm. So, I I get what he does now. Uh, Was he still sticking to arguing civil rights cases once he started working for the government, or, or did that all change? No, he definitely
4: was. And it was during this time on the Court of Appeals that Marshall issued over 100 decisions on civil rights battles as well as other hot-button issues like women's rights, police brutality. And amazingly, none of these 100-plus decisions were overturned by the Supreme Court. And Marshall had a similarly strong record during his two years as Solicitor General, too. So he argued 19 cases before the Supreme Court during that stint and won 14 of those.
3: That is really impressive.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And with a track record like that, it wasn't long before President Johnson decided that Marshall belonged on the Supreme Court. So there were a couple of wrenches in his plan, though, and chief among them was that there wasn't actually a vacancy to appoint him to.
3: (laughs) So I'm guessing Johnson might have played a little dirty and engineered something for him, right? I mean, some say that he did, yeah. I mean, the story goes that Johnson decided to engineer a
4: vacancy himself by creating a conflict of interest for one of the sitting justices. And this was a fellow Democrat named Tom Clark. So apparently, President Johnson appointed Clark's son as attorney general, which prompted his father to step down so it wouldn't look like nepotism. Mm. So it's up for debate whether this was done to open the seat to Marshall specifically, but he is definitely the one who filled it. And there is evidence that Johnson and Marshall liked each other and got along pretty well. So according to biographer Juan Williams, the two men love to drink bourbon and tell stories full of lies.
3: And wash soap operas.
4: <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> but even with Johnson on his side, it's not like Marshall's appointment to the Supreme Court was a cakewalk. I can't imagine there was a backlash to trying to get a Black person on the Supreme yeah, Court, right? It's pretty shocking, <laughs> I know. But all right, well, let's take a quick break and then get back into this.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the tonne.
1: Listen to Season 2 of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the General. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but...
2: Same old. Oh, oh, yeah.
3: Okay, well, so Thurgood Marshall was sworn into the Supreme Court in October of 1967, but that was only after what it sounds like was this pretty grueling confirmation process. It it took place over the course of a week that summer. And from what I read, Marshall underwent more hours of questioning than any Supreme Court nominee before him. Yeah, and this was largely because a
4: handful of senators from southern states really did their best to torpedo his nomination. The history of the region has left many of these old guard senators with, you know, an axe to grind and shutting down the first potential black SCOTUS member definitely fit the bill. So, for instance, Mississippi's senator at the time was a guy named James Eastland. And according to The Atlantic, Eastland was, quote, a notorious racist whose father had famously lynched black people. He himself owned a plantation that employed more than 100 black sharecroppers. And his daughter had been crowned Miss Confederacy 1956. <laughs> That's a little clue there. Anyway, he was the head of the committee for Marshall's nomination.
3: Seems like a little uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, you read a LinkedIn profile like that, and it feels like a miracle <laughs> that, uh, that Marshall got through, right?
4: I mean, he wasn't the only one there with, you know, you might consider questionable views on race. So Senator Strom Thurman was also on the committee. It's amazing how long this guy was in office. And his main contribution was to subject Marshall to what basically amounted to a Jim Crow era literacy test. He cross-examined Marshall, quizzing him on all these obscure, ridiculously specific portions of political history So, for instance, one question he asked him was to name all the members of the Congressional Committee that had reviewed the 14th Amendment in 1866, which, of (laughs) course, he couldn't answer this. But there's one thing nobody could. A little later in the proceeding, Ted Kennedy asked Strom Thurmond if he could name the committee members from 1866, and guess what? He couldn't. No, of course he couldn't. (laughs) And there was no reason why a Supreme Court justice would need to rattle off random information like that. So these Southern senators were drilling Marshall because of the color of his skin and because of what he represented, not because they had any real serious doubts about his legal knowledge or his ability to serve in this position. And because the case against Marshall was so flimsy, the Judiciary Committee ultimately approved his nomination with a resounding 11 to 5 vote. And then the Senate confirmed him with an equally definitive vote of 69 to 11, which honestly is a little surprising when you look back.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's impressive, but it does feel like there were a significant amount of uh, senators who didn't vote on it, right? Like, that's only like 80 people who voted on his nomination? Yeah, that's
4: quick math. Good job. <laughs> well, in the end, President Johnson knew he could never get the votes of the Southern Democratic senators who opposed Marshall. So rather than trying to sway the unswayable... He instead focused on getting them to abstain from voting altogether rather than casting a vote against Marshall. And the lobbying seemed to work, as you can tell from these numbers. But I do think it's worth noting that even if all 20 of those abstentions had voted no on Marshall, he still would have had more than enough yeses to get confirmed.
3: Yeah, and after the harassment in committee, it must have been nice to have that kind of validation, right? Like, that's a pretty resounding vote in Marshall's favor. Oh, definitely. I mean, the hearing had been this speed
4: bump and what ended up being a pretty smooth next few years for Marshall. He joined a very liberal Supreme Court, which obviously lined up very well with Marshall's own political views.
3: So I, I am curious about this. Like, what would you say those views were, broadly speaking? Like, his job was obviously to interpret the Constitution. So what was his take on it?
4: I mean, it's hard to say definitively. But from what I've read about his rulings and from people who work closely with him, It sounds like Marshall largely viewed the Constitution as a means of promoting a kind of equality under the law, especially following the Civil War and the addition of certain amendments. And I think that viewpoint is certainly reflected in the changes to the constitutional law that he had advocated for during all his years as both an attorney and then later as a judge. And he was trying to make the law align more closely with the goal of legal equality under the law that he saw represented in the Constitution. And actually, I have a quote here that's a good example of the kind of alignment I'm talking about. This is something Marshall said in 1988, which is just a few years before his retirement in 91. He said, quote, a child born to a black mother in a state like Mississippi has exactly the same rights as a white baby born to the wealthiest person in the United States. It's not true, but I challenge anyone to say it's not a goal worth
3: working for. Which is obviously like a powerful way to think about it. And it's interesting to think about how people interpret Marshall's philosophy. It's kind of this uh, do what you think is right and let the law catch up idea. And on one hand, that puts him in the category of activist judges, which some politicians kind of rail against today. And on the other hand, it, it sort of lets the laws guide the country to a more equitable world. But I was thinking a lot about this week how Marshall played a pretty unique role in the civil rights movement in that regard, like, you think about Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Malcolm X and how they sort of share the spotlight when people think about the most influential figures of that era. And they each tried their own different courses of action, right? Like King was more this, I have a dream, big unity, big movement. And Malcolm was more by any means necessary. But in the background, you've got Thurgood Marshall plugging away with a third course of action, not to change society directly, but, but to actually change the laws that dictate the kind of society we live in.
4: He actually came across an obituary for Marshall that um, that said, we make movies about Malcolm X, we get a holiday to honor Dr. Martin Luther King, but every day we live the legacy of Justice Thurgood Marshall. Mm. Which isn't to say that we don't live the legacy of the other guys too, but legal precedent can sometimes hold more sway in the long term than a speech or a march. So I do think we owe a special kind of debt to Marshall for you know sort of covering the bases on that end.
3: So why do you think Marshall doesn't seem to get as much attention these days as other civil rights icons? Is it just that like courtroom dramas are seen as kind of stuffy or dense or academic compared to like speeches and protests?
4: Yeah, I mean, you know I actually think a lot of it comes down to how Marshall's career went in the years after he joined the Supreme Court. We mentioned there had been a liberal majority when Marshall was confirmed in the late 1960s, but that changed drastically over the course of the 70s and then into the 80s. In fact, during Marshall's 24 years on the court, Republican presidents made eight consecutive appointments, which transformed the court and filled every spot on the bench but his. So that means then in the second half of his tenure, Marshall was in the minority and found, you know, his opinions increasingly overruled. As you might imagine, that there wasn't an easy transition for somebody whose entire career was built on his incredible penchant for winning. Mm-hmm. Marshall became more and more isolated from the rest of the court, you know, with his contributions mostly limited to these strongly worded dissents about his colleagues' rulings. But he never gave up. Actually, at one point, he even vowed to remain on the court until he was 110 years old. (laughs) But in the end, he became too ill to continue serving and had to step down in 1991. So two years later, Marshall passed away at the age of 84.
3: Well, it's fascinating to hear how Marshall got stymied like that after finally making it to the Supreme Court. But I know his presence on the court alone still had this like profound impact on the country and and certainly on the issues he spent his whole life fighting for. And I'm sure just having a black man seated on the highest court in the land had to be life changing for millions of people and something that must have influenced so many kids and, and what they dreamed was possible.
4: Yeah, I think even if you don't have that personal connection with his service, there's still so much to admire about Marshall's legacy. So his commitment to changing the system from within and you know, being a voice for the voiceless is something that should still resonate with all of us. In fact, this is going to sound random, but did you happen to come across the commencement address that he gave at the University of Virginia?
3: No, I haven't read that. All
4: right, well, he gave it to the graduating class of 1978, and it is worth tracking down. I won't read all of it here, but there's this one piece of advice that really stuck out to me and it just says where you see wrong or inequality or injustice speak out because this is your country this is your democracy make it protect it pass it on
3: i like that so what do you say we leave things there and jump straight into the fact off mm-hmm.
4: All right, well, here's something kind of random. Remember how I mentioned that Thurgood Marshall graduated college with the first president of Ghana mm-hmm. earlier? So, well, it turns out that wasn't the only connection Marshall had with the emerging nation. In the 1950s, after Marshall made a name for himself with the NAACP, the United Nations and the United Kingdom asked him to help write the constitutions of Ghana and Tanzania, <laughs> which he, of course, did. And in fact, both of those constitutions are still in use today.
3: That is wild. But, you know, what made the U.N. and the U.K. think to ask Marshall for help?
4: Well, at the time, the regions had just won their independence from European rules. So there was some international concern about the minority white citizens of the new countries and the fact that they might face oppression. And so the UN and the UK figured that since Marshall had been such an effective champion for minority rights in America, he actually might be able to do the same for Ghana and Tanzania.
3: That's really interesting. So here's one I was pretty shocked to learn. Not only was Thurgood Marshall sworn into the Supreme Court by a former Klansman, it actually happened by Marshall's request. So Hmm. uh, apparently Marshall saw it as a way to kind of extend an olive branch to the South and to the Southern senators who had opposed his nomination. Wow. Weirdly enough, the one-time Alabama Klan member was this guy named Hugo Black. He was also a justice on the Supreme Court when Marshall was appointed in 1967. So Black had been appointed to the court back in 1937, and it was just a few weeks into his term that his prior involvement with the Klan came to light. So dozens of newspapers called for his resignation, but Black stayed on on the court anyway, citing the fact that he'd already cut ties with the Klan I guess, more than a decade earlier, and that he had no intention of ever joining up again.
4: So do you think Black ever really turned over a new leaf, or was he just distancing himself from the Klan, you know, for political reasons?
3: It is tough to say for certain either way, but the truth is probably somewhere in between. If you look at Black's track record on the court, it certainly seems like he changed his mind. He was part of that unanimous ruling that struck down school segregation. And he and Marshall actually became pretty chummy while serving together until Black's retirement in 1971. Of course, any way you look at it, a former Klansman swearing in the first black Supreme Court justice does say a lot about the changing shape of race relations in America at the time. And it was this really powerful message to send. And Marshall didn't let that opportunity go to waste. All right. One thing I don't think we've mentioned yet
4: is the nickname Marshall earned for himself during his time working for the NAACP. He was known colloquially as Mr. Civil Rights. (laughs) That's really creative. I want that t-shirt. Makes sense, though. (laughs) And his dedication to the cause certainly made him deserving of this title. In fact, Marshall often put his own life on the line while fighting for these civil rights. And it was in 1946 that he went to Tennessee to defend a group of black men in a pretty racially charged case. Once the trial was over, Marshall and his colleagues knew it was in their best interest to get out of town as fast as possible. Sure. Unfortunately, their concern was quickly validated because according to biographer Will Haygood, Marshall's group was ambushed on the road by locals, and Marshall himself was arrested on these false charges. Separate from this group, Marshall was then placed in a black sheriff's car, immediately driven off the main road, which, given the circumstances, was pretty ominous. And to make the whole thing even more suspicious, Marshall's colleagues were instructed not to follow and instead to continue driving on their way to Nashville. Luckily, the group knew better. They decided to tail the sheriff anyway. And at that point, the car quickly returned to the main road and Marshall was released not long afterward. So when recounting the event years later, Marshall said he would have been lynched then and there if not for his colleagues.
3: So that is horrifying. Here's one that's a little lighter. Uh, According to Marshall's second wife, he was a super talented home cook and he would often come home in the evenings after a long day in the Supreme Court, and then just whip up these amazing meals for his wife and two sons using every single pot in the kitchen. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, his specialty dish was chicken and chitlins.
4: I kind of want this uh, Thurgood Marshall cookbook I know, me too. All right, well, speaking of Marshall's second wife, I've actually got a sweet one here about her. She was a woman of Philippine descent. Her name was Cecilia Suyat, and the way she and Marshall met was a bit of a happy accident. Cecilia went to the unemployment office in 1948. She was looking for work, And because her skin was on the darker side, the clerk assumed she was black and set her up with a job as a stenographer for the NAACP's legal team. Cecilia later said she was forever grateful for the clerk's mistaken assumption, because not only did it open her eyes to the race problem of America, it also introduced her to her future husband.
3: At
4: first, though, Cecilia wasn't sure she and Marshall would make a good match, or at least not a publicly accepted one. Although she had been born in Hawaii, she worried that people would think Marshall was marrying a foreigner and that it would have had a negative impact on his budding career. But Marshall didn't want any of that. When Cecilia raised this concern, Marshall told her plainly, I don't care what people think, I'm marrying you. And he did. So Marshall and Cecilia tied the knot in 1955, had two sons together, John and Thurgood Jr., and remained happily married until Marshall's passing in 1993. Oh, and I'm, I'm happy to report Cecilia herself is still going strong today at 90 years
3: young. I love that. It's such a great story, and I do think you deserve today's trophy for it. That does it for today's show. If you want to send us facts or just say hello, we're at part genius at iheartmedia.com. So from Gabe, Tristan, Will, and me, thank you so much for listening.
4: Part-Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: A new season of Bridgerton is here.